liberation news. Oh yeah, I at first I was like, did Dan get a job as a writer? And then I was like, oh, uh, that's the PSL's paper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Dan literally does have a job as a reporter. We're about to do it. <laughs> That's right. A lot of people don't realize this because we don't release video versions of the podcast, but we are all wearing those little reporter hats with the piece of paper (laughs) sticking out the side, (laughs) a little band around it. They've got like in somehow got like a little pencil wedged in between my headphones and my ear. It's incredibly uncomfortable, but you have to, you know, have that stereotypical look to be an official journalist. Yep. Yeah. I also deliver the papers on a bicycle and I just (laughs) added uh, pegs to the, to the back area, the back wheel so that, um, you know, my, my friends can ride the bike with me. It's a two person bike now. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I can't tell you, honestly, This show, it's challenging having two shows because I can't tell you how many times I've logged on to this show wearing my ski mask and bandolier and then realized all of a sudden I was wearing the wrong outfit entirely. <laughs> or were you? Or was I? Ski mask and bandolier, you wouldn't think they go together, but they work together pretty good, depending on what you're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, speaking of things that work really well <laughs> yeah what, i don't you know. mean democracy yeah like <laughs> I, we, I don't have like a whole thing in the notes about it but the fact that like the uawd reform caucus in the uaw was able to basically force the uaw administration to pass one of their own proposed planks before the uaw convention kind of rocks yeah well i mean uh when when going over like history, every, people will be like, "Oh, it, the reason why uh, this happened was because you know there were workers fighting for it, and and that's the whole reason is that struggle is happening, and that's the only way that things actually come to pass to make things better for the working class." And you know, you kind of just say, "Oh yeah, that's what the historical notion is," but like these days, it re- you can like literally in real time see the struggles and then the results mm-hmm. yeah well i think that's really a, a testament to the way that workers have been really uh just discarding any idea of labor peace being necessary uh which i think is working to great effect you know with it whether it's within a union or against an employer like if you're trying to build a, a union where your your you and your fellow workers are receiving everything you need. You don't like sit back and try to have a polite conversation about it. Like you go all out. You go on the offensive and and you take as many W's as you can get. And I, I it's it's great to see that uh, within a union as well as uh, when a union is fighting against a company. Right. What well, they got, they got the they almost doubled. Was it like two seventy five to four hundred? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Striking pay. Well, and it's funny because, like, the UAW Admin Caucus, which basically represents the establishment within the UAW, is like, look what we did. We did this. <laughs> and it's like, mm-hmm. th- it's just co- coincidence that it's the exact amount the UAWD put on one of their planks for the, I- the new convention. <laughs> I would call it Democrat brain, except the UAW actually did give the UAWD what they were asking for. So it's considerably better than Democrat brain, despite still being kind of (laughs) shitty. Yeah, I mean, like, whatever. The, the, the trying to take credit for it is annoying, but the important thing is that they managed to to really force this through because of fear. Now that, you know, with one member, one vote in there, uh, they can't just rely on the same delegates to elect them every year, and they actually have to weirdly maybe address the concerns of the membership if they want to be elected into leadership that's right well (laughs) speaking of uh addressing concerns 
Stoppage, a one-member, one-vote podcast with three members and three votes. Uh, we've never used them, <laughs> but we will eventually. Uh, we're 100% listener-supported, so thank you so much. If you are a patron on the Patreon page, if you're not in the Discord, get in there. It's free, uh, which uh, is a point in the, in the Discord's favor. Um, and if you are a Patreon subscriber and you don't have your stickers yet, just message us on Patreon and we'll get them to you. And if you want to help the show a little bit more, uh, use your one-member vote to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry for that one. Uh, yeah, and follow us on Twitter and stuff. But we're going to get right into it, and we are going to talk about one of everybody's most, I, I almost said favorite, but I feel like this is one of the most polarizing grocery store chains in the United States, Trader Joe's, who we had talked about previously uh, about the when we talked about the formation of the first union at a Trader Joe's store in Hadley, Massachusetts. And since that announcement, management has been relentlessly cracking down on workers and launched a union-busting campaign that seems insistent on beating Howard Schultz for most <laughs> NLRA violations in the shortest span of time. <laughs> yeah, like, this one, I already, I, I mean, look, it it's not funny because it's bad, but at the same time, it's been wild to me how these companies spend so much money hiring Littler Mendelssohn or the Labor Relations Institute or any of these other union-busting law firms. You're spending thousands and thousands of dollars every day to figure out how to bust the union. And then they just go and do the stuff that's like the most obvious illegal violations of the NLRA out there, like right. here where they have repeatedly violated the most important part of the NLRA, which is the button clause, which protects a worker's right to wear pro-union buttons. That's right. I, I should have mentioned it. at the top, this is basically a buttons podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I mean, we said it, well, I think it was last time or the time before, is like, that is maybe the main thing that the NLRA like supports is button wearing. That's like correct. Union, mm -hmm. It's on this, every single piece of paper. They squeeze it into the area in between each section on the thing. There's literally a button clause in every part of the document. Yeah, both the NLRA and this podcast are far too fancy for the Amish due to our support of buttons. Yeah, that's but, right. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, like, you know, despite the jokes, like, that is one of the things that they've immediately targeted is, of course, any actual display of support for the union in the workplace, including the wearing of buttons. And specifically, like one of the workers at the Hadley store, Jamie Edwards, said that they were wearing, you know, just an, a, a normal size button that's like Trader Joe's Unite, you know, supporting the union. And they were told by a manager that uh, they, you know, had to take the button off despite the fact that, you know, that's a violation of the NLRA. And so they said, quote, after that, we were sort of at an impasse. She says that being the manager, if you insist on wearing it, I will have to ask you to go home. I ended up having to go home and miss the rest <laughs> of that shift. And they're not the only person. There have been at least four workers who have been told to remove pro-union buttons or be sent home. And I, there are so many ways that you can skirt the NLRA because it's so weighted in favor, especially after Taft-Hartley, like in favor of the company. There's a million things you can do completely legally that shouldn't be legal to fuck with the union. But they're all, they like, 
it, they see it's like management sees this button as an open sign of defiance that they just cannot put up with. And so, of course, have to make these flagrant violations. So obviously, you know, the workers have filed ULPs against mm-hmm. Trader Joe's for these attacks. And, and, and it's not just buttons. They also say that management has removed union literature from their break room and have done yet another one of the very obviously illegal parts of a union busting campaign of enforcing rules that prohibit workers from discussing pay and working conditions at work. Which, I mean, that's just such a clear violation. Yeah. Do you really need to hire, like you said, do you need to hire Little or Mendelssohn <laughs> to tell you to just go ahead and violate the NLRA? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, they they do it every time. I mean, the Little or Mendelssohn, it, like, they are the embodiment of of walking right up to the line and skirt and just going over it and being like, is anybody watching? Right. Yeah. Like they they really they really just like are uh, they have unabashed uh, like use of illegal union busting tactics. Yeah, and yeah. they're doing more than that too. They're also like doing the thing Starbucks did, where they fly in executives and they try and have the executives pal around with the workers a little bit. So they brought in President of Stores John Basiloni to talk to workers at the Hadley vo- uh, location. And uh, veteran worker Meg Yosef, sorry if I said that wrong, uh, said, "quote These tactics do interfere and put pressure on the crew. They are allowing anti-union crew members to be very vocal in the store. It's just a distraction, and we're trying not." to get too wrapped up in it we anticipated there would be union busting we know the company's history and we'll just deal with it so i mean that's kind of unfortunately all you can really do in situations like this is just endure it but yeah to have your employees come out and just say that that's what they're going to do i think is important and it like you said lena it shows resolve yeah and i do think though that one of the things that this demonstrates and i I feel like we've hit on this on the show a, a bunch of times is that Anybody, you know, if you've been listening to a while, you start to recognize that there is very much a playbook like for Mm -hmm. this sort of thing. And this is one of the places where I feel like the media strategy from groups like Starbucks Workers United, where they're very like because of the rank and file nature of their campaign, they're very open about talking about all of this stuff, all of the sorts of union busting that they've been facing. Same with the Amazon workers. And because there's so many of those elections and all this happening right now. I mean, whether it's in the mainstream media or not, there's so much more information out there for workers like these Trader Joe's workers to find out what they're likely to face in Mm -hmm. a drive. And like, and so like, as this, like, you know, this worker, uh, Meg Yosef said, like they expected this because it's, you know, at this point that you kind of know if you've been following what's going on, like what they're going to do. And one of the things that I did also appreciate with the, the media strategy that Target, that uh, not Target, uh, that um, Trader Joe's Workers Unite had on this is basically going on a bit of a media offensive with their Twitter account, um, basically trying to call Trader Joe's out on their purported progressive uh, company atmosphere that they claim to have. Sure. Where basically they took a letter that had been sent out from the CEO of Trader Joe's, Dan Bain, to try and get workers to vote against the union and instead said, like countering his his thing, saying, quote, Dan, here's the pledge you can make and the pledge that we are asking you to make. Let us vote without interference, without retaliation, without attempts at union busting, without a campaign of disinformation, end quote. Hell yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, like, uh, this, you know, it's always good to put that statement out. But as we know, there is not really a a very good chance of that actually coming to pass. I mean, these companies are incredibly anti-worker, every single one of them. I I don't think that there is a company out there that really is pro-worker. I mean, maybe a a co-op or something, like a a worker-owned co-op. Trader Joe's and Aldi in particular get under my skin because they really, really, especially in their employment advertisements, try to promote themselves as like more progressive, forward thinking, like, you know, socially moving forward kind of companies. But then you look into their history and like Aldi was co-founded by a guy named Theo Albrecht, who was a Nazi officer in the German army who then got a bunch of funding from Americans in West Germany and uh, eventually ended up owning half of Aldi and Trader Joe's for a little while. Like, these are Nazi fucking companies that have just reskinned a bunch of times and are now trying to convince you that paying you, you know, fifteen fifty an hour and seventeen fifty for supervisors is like some great gift from the fucking sky, and that these these are the companies that are going to like, you know, carry us into the the new and wonderful world of consumer uh, lifestyles. We whatever. give our cash. We give our cashiers stools. Why would you possibly need a union? Yeah, it's like well, we do the bare fucking minimum, huh? You can't hate us. Like. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, of course, this comes as rather unsurprising, you know, that the company would do this. But it's it's good to see the workers pushing back and standing strong. And so, you know, all solidarity with the Trader Joe's workers, and hopefully they're able to fight through this, and we get to see the first officially recognized Trader Joe's union, mm-hmm. and then another after that, and another after that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, there we're gonna hopefully continue to see waves at, at a lot of these very public-facing, quote-unquote, progressive companies. But I guess uh, on that note, with the you know, quote-unquote, progressive companies in mind, oh yeah, we can move to uh, actually a pretty interesting story of solidarity between two unions uh, in regards to the Apple retail stores that we've been talking about unionizing. Um, so. You know, well, remember that in Atlanta, there the union at the at the Copperland Mall, um, you had to like pull their union election uh, because of the uh, immense union busting that Apple was doing, and uh, we're as we're saying with these this wave of unionization, uh, there's a bunch of different Apple retail stores that are unionizing, and one of them is actually in this uh, in Maryland in Townsend, Maryland. Where this, uh, you know, this Apple retail store is actually unionizing with the International Association of Machinists, which I think is interesting because uh, we're going to get into this, but this story is mostly about CWA and Workers United. And but anyway, their election is on on June fifteenth. Hey, that's my birthday. <laughs> what a nice what a nice birthday present for me. I mean, one of the things that I did find confusing when reading over this is that when you have this many unions collaborating at one time, it can be kind of hard to remember all the details of who's doing what and organizing at what store. But as I was thinking about that during my shift at work today, I realized that the Apple management is probably equally or even more confused. And that's a <laughs> yeah. really, really good thing to be... Uh, 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 using to your advantage in this organizing yeah admittedly i sort of wedged two stories together in these notes because (laughs) there's been a lot going on with the apple 
drive because there's the store in Atlanta that mm-hmm. is is still unionizing. They just temporarily withdrew their election right. petition. There's this store in Towson, Maryland. There's also a store, I believe, in Kentucky that's unionizing. And then as we're going to get to in a minute, there's the store in Grand Central Terminal in New York City, the Fruit Stand Workers United right. group uh, who came up with their excellent name for their their own union. And so, but before we leave the Towson store to get onto, you know, sort of the bigger overarching story with, with this, like one of the workers at that store was explaining like, you know, what prompted them to push for this. Cause one of the things that I think some people have been a little surprised about with the push at the Apple stores is I think there's a perception of like, well, if you're going to work retail, Apple's like the cushy gig. That's where you get like, paid really well and you get really good benefits comparatively for you the retail. You get called world. a genius. Right. Oh my <laughs> gosh. When I yeah, when I worked at uh at a you know a retail sales job, there were a lot of people who came from Apple and they're like that is not a good place. Yeah. <laughs> and and so like this worker uh Anya Igulu said, quote, we're standing up to make a better life for ourselves and our family that we feel we deserve and I think all workers deserve. We love our work extremely. We just want to have a say in the things that affect us. And there was another worker at the same store, Eric Brown, who said, there have been so many times where we said, we've tried this thing. It doesn't really work. It's not going to work now that you're trying to roll out out again. We think it should be this way. And the response is, well, this is how the company wants it done. And then they change it. Yeah. That kind of unilateral stuff is uh, what you can expect from companies, but they especially like to lean on it when they see that their workers are organizing and they like to reinforce that, like, you know, we give the edicts and and you follow them, but the workers are kind of getting wise to all of this stuff because the workers at the, the, I keep wanting to call it Tucson, like... (laughs) Like the second city from Earthbound. From Earthbound. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the, the workers at the Tosin store say that hearing about Apple's union busting at the store in Atlanta was eye-opening and provided organizers with what to expect at their store. And they were able to use what they had seen in Atlanta to inoculate their own workers against anti-union propaganda, which is so, so fucking important. Like mm-hmm. if you're trying to unionize uh, at, at any store that is a, is a chain or has multiple locations and other stores have tried before you, definitely... Definitely research how the company responded to them because like companies aren't that creative and the union busting firms they hire aren't all that creative. So they're probably just going to try the exact same shit again. Yeah. Well, and absolutely. And we've heard so much from so many different organizers who've said that when they told their fellow coworkers what they expected the company to do, some of them would be like, well, I don't know. The company's always been relatively decent. I'm sure they won't be that bad and then exactly what the organizer said was going to happen happens and it there's for so many workers are like oh well this is eye-opening well yeah like was it um i think fidel said this about che or it might have been the other way around but fidel like wasn't really like really committed to like marxism until he realized that everything che kept saying was going to happen kept happening and then he was like okay i'll do this marxism (laughs) thing yeah (laughs) Yeah. And well, the other thing, though, that I thought was brilliant that these workers at the Towson store pointed out. And of course, this is you'd only get this from the workers themselves. This is one of the reasons why having a rank and file campaign is so important, because the workers actually know the environment that they're organizing. in. one Mm -hmm. of the things they pointed out is that in Apple's own code of conduct policy for their sub suppliers, 
they require their suppliers to remain neutral in union elections. <laughs> and like to the point where it says in from their own manual, supplier is not required to take an active role in supporting workers' efforts to associate or organize, but supplier must ensure that workers can exercise their right to organize in a climate free of violence, pressure, fear, intimidation, and threats. Yeah, I feel like that is just a like a preemptive like, oh, so when we do all these things, we can say that there's a policy against it and that right. we're not actually doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's the thing is like when you look at that, it's like well, you would think theoretically if you actually believe that policy. Well, if that's what you're holding your suppliers to, then your own policy for your own company would be another level above that, you would think, if it was sincere. But of course... Despite that policy, Apple's rolling out the whole Littler Mendelssohn playbook with intimidation, status quo changes, like implied threats that workers who unionize won't get the same raises and opportunities as other workers. All the sorts of things that theoretically this policy uh, would ban if they actually believed in it. So it, it really shows the hollowness of, of Apple's rhetoric around their quote unquote progressive environment. But to what you were alluding to at the beginning of the story, um, Lena, like we have a really big part of the news about this week about the Apple Drive isn't even necessarily so much focused on one store, although this is primarily about the Grand Central store. It's a, basically the announcement of an alliance between the CWA and Workers United to work together on organizing Apple stores across the country. And this is huge. Like, I haven't seen a, an explicit, like, teaming agreement like this. I don't know that I where they've actually come out and said, we are going to work together to do this on really any other campaign. I think this is really exciting news. Oh, it's hugely exciting. I mean, like, you, you don't have to wonder... Uh, think think about in a in, in like a wrestling match when two wrestlers team up, <laughs> the crowd goes fucking nuts. I'm not That's even right. a big wrestling fan, but uh, to see unions team up like this, I mean, this is a sign of a lot of forward momentum. I think, uh, and there was another story we reported on recently where there was some interunion solidarity. I think contributing to uh the it strike the, fund. Yeah, it was the local of the um the fucking the John Deere workers. Um, mm-hmm. That, that they were in, uh, showing solidarity with the striking um, farm the equipment case workers. Case New Holland workers. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, right. Case New Holland. Well, and just like I said then, like that kind of interunion solidarity and, and teamwork, I mean, that's really what's going to get things done, right? I mean, like, I don't, I don't know about, I don't know if I speak for the whole pod, but my big dream is like one big federation of unions that is like yeah. a badass political party, more or less. Like, well, I mean, I, I honestly, that's, I think, part of the reason why I have been like, at least in, if people have listened to our patron episodes, have been so hard on the AFL-CIO uh-huh. because in addition to the many bad things in their past history that they did collaborating with the CIA, it's extremely frustrating because the concept of a united labor federation has such incredible potential and to see it used to like at worst, you know, support anti-communist U S foreign imperialist foreign policy. And even at its more average day to day functioning of Mm -hmm. largely, you know, defending police unions and, donating money to the Democrats. And so it's like, man, this could be, you could be doing so much more with this is really where I think a lot of the frustration comes with not necessarily that there, you know, there's, 
not that like Liz Schuler is some like evil mastermind or anything. Right, right. I, well, I think she means well. It's just that like the AFL has so many members and there's so much stuff it could be doing that it's not. And so this sort of a teaming agreement between the CWA and Workers United really seems like a huge step in the right direction. Absolutely. And, And so like Lynn Fox, president of Workers United, explained in their press release, CWA has a national plan that will lead to density and collective power for Apple retail workers. It is counterproductive for unions to go after hot shops to the detriment of the collective good of the campaign. Oh, that's so true, because, I mean, building the movement is going to bring in the members. I mean, like unions want members uh, specifically to, you know, empower the working class, but also having a stronger union means, you know more members and and having you know more funds to do things and and that's why you know a lot of unions might you know especially in the past might have just gone for quote unquote hot shops and and just tried to you know i think that this is what we see a little bit with the ufcw kind of going in on some of the the uh, starbucks uh situation where it's like oh starbucks is a really hot shop and and you know like we didn't see them actually come out with a unified agreement like the cwa and um, Workers United is seeing right here, which, I mean, I, I know that I brag on the UFCW a lot, and it's mostly because they keep doing vaguely shitty shit, uh, things, but, like, you know, they're still they're still a, a strong union, and if you're yeah, part of the yeah, UFCW, I mean, you know, j- join the rank-and-file caucus. Yeah, like, it's... I'd certainly rather have a Starbucks location be organized by UFCW than not be organized at all. Like right. we want all these places to be unionized in the same way that it's like, it's not as if we're mad at the machinists for organizing the Towson store. It's just that these campaigns will go better for everyone involved. If all the unions are working together on it and pooling resources. And so that they're not, you know, clashing or running into like pooling resources in places they don't need them while not diverting resources to places that do need them that sort Mm -hmm. of thing it's it's the cooperation will be better for workers everywhere and so this agreement with cwa and workers united i think is has so much potential to make this campaign really explode which is right is really awesome. And like without without actually like directly saying, "Hey, we're working together." I do think that that gives the company an in for like you know union busting. Hey, I mean, you're not e- your union's not even going to be part of the other union or whatever. You know, they're going to come out with a line like that. So, I mean, I do think that coming out uh, in solidarity with each other is a very important public statement. Yeah, well, yeah. and you, you hear that from the workers themselves as well. Like, you have Anthony Viola, who's a member of the organizing committee at the Grand Central store, uh, and uh, oh, for Fruit Stand Workers United, you have to specify which union in this story, uh, who, who said the agreement was great. And he said, quote, uh, when we think about the next step in mobilizing our peers into power, we can only fight back the endless union busting and fear tactics on a larger scale. Through Workers United, we have learned what we can expect from Littler, and we are prepared. By joining forces with CWA, we intend to participate with countless other stores to achieve workers' rights across Apple retail in the U.S., and we believe we will succeed. So, I mean, basically just saying exactly what we were saying, like, you can't really scale this union thing up without beginning to bring different unions together in various ways. And so that's really where, like, the real power uh, in, in, the, in American labor lies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, this is just extremely encouraging. I really hope that what this is a sing- signal of is the potential for there to be, you know, a... Apple retail union movement that 
mirrors, at least in some manner, the Starbucks Workers United movement that we've seen. And so hopefully, you know, we get the success with the Towson store this later this week, which will be like probably just after this episode comes out. And then also at the Grand Central store. So uh, this is really awesome. Like, I think one of the things that's especially important about this is like, when you look through like really the history of any worker struggle, but even just the labor movement generally, every one of these cycles has ebbs and flows. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and like right now we're at a moment of a lot of activity and we need the major unions to be seizing on that and pouring their resources into it. Because if we just get, I don't know, a couple thousand Starbucks workers out of the whole chain, if we get, I don't know, one, two, three, half a dozen Amazon warehouse workers, and we don't see the major unions get behind these independent rank and file drives mm-hmm. and it doesn't end to sit, go anywhere bigger than that. Well then we're probably going to be left, you know, in the same spot that we have been in. But if we actually see the larger unions coming together, and I think we've seen signs of this with the teamsters supporting the ALU, the yeah. AFT, uh, the AFT, like who we don't actually talk about all that much on the show. They did donate, I believe like a quarter million dollars to wow. the ALU, um, like, fun to help run their, their, their campaigns, which is great. And then this agreement between CWA and workers United, that's the shit we need. And so it's really, really encouraging to see this sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say when you talked about the, the union collaboration, we basically need like a lot more Sean (laughs) O'Brien's in the major unions in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, for our international story, not in the United States, I actually, this next story is so cool well i mean especially the photos uh and i mean i'm sure i'm gonna use one of these for the art this week Mm -hmm. because they're just so so amazing and i will talk more about that but in in uh south korea there are truckers who have gone on strike and have basically shut down like multiple ports ports um in the country uh including the the one at Busan, which is like what the seventh largest port yeah. in in the world. Yeah. Uh, honestly, it's it's fucking wild. So there are about uh four hundred and twenty whoa uh, <laughs> nice. thousand uh truckers in South Korea and uh twenty five thousand of them are members of the KPTU uh, which is the uh, federal or the Korean uh, Federation of Public Service and Transportation Workers, um, and they have gone on strike where with um, seventy eight hundred truckers. Uh, hopefully, you know, bringing in more over time. But uh, you know, these these nearly eight thousand workers ha- uh, did a big like sit in and have been just like blocking the road. And the way that they do that, and again, I'm going to use it in the art, but they're like straight up like military rank and file style, like sitting in uh, like in rows and and like it. They look so fucking powerful. They they look incredibly coordinated and and just like scary. Like if yeah. this is what if your union looked like this, your boss would shit their pants. It's it, it, <laughs> it's everything the fucking freedom convoy could never ever fucking. Be. Oh <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, and we've seen some of this in the previous stories that we've covered on some of the big like one day sort of general mo- workers mobilizations in South Korea. Is the level of like discipline that the unions have been able to muster in, in shows of force is really impressive. Like, as you are saying, like it's, I mean, a huge crowd of people is imposing no matter what, but when all those people are in lockstep and like 
in it, like a, almost like a grid, basically shutting down these roads. It's, it's got that extra level of intimidation factor to it, which I think is fantastic. Like, and yeah, we know that at least 8,000 of the members have participated in the strike so far, but I've read a, from a few of the different sources on this. It's probably a lot more. It's like at least 8,000 have attended these major rallies, but I've seen several sources that indicate that it's probably more like 10 to 20,000 of the, the members that have actually just, you know, stopped work and, and not taken part in their normal deliveries. And this strike, there's so much about this strike that basically just highlights exactly what we've been talking about when we talk about like the power that truckers and logistics workers generally can have. Like when we talked about the BNSF workers, when we've talked about like the workers at XPS logistics at the port of LA, like, this is the sort of thing. And again, like those numbers that you gave Lena, like there's 420,000 truckers in South Korea, only 25,000 of them are in this, this union, the KPTU's cargo trucker solidarity division. And we only know for sure that like maybe a third to a half have been on strike and they've basically paralyzed several of the largest ports in the world, uh, which is, I don't know, I think pretty incredible. And they have faced some repression. At least 25 members of the union have been arrested for taking part in these demonstrations, blockading roads, blockading ports, blockading factories. But, I mean, they've held strong. So this has been going on since last Tuesday, June 7th. And what this all comes down to ultimately is really a fight over misclassification and bad labor law policy. Like it, as with so many of the countries that have become, that are U S client States, uh, like South Korea has a lot of labor laws that are built on neoliberal policies, like that the U S likes to impose everywhere that it goes and, and takes over. And one of them is the fact that the vast majority of truckers in South Korea are operating on the independent contractor or sometimes owner operator basis, which means they don't have any of the protections of like minimum wage or protected right to organize or all the other things that you would expect from, from basic employment labor law. And that's been a huge problem recently when gas prices, of course, have soared through the roof. And so if you're an independent contractor, you individual truck driver are on the hook for that. Nobody else, your boss, your, your boss, whoever's hiring you doesn't have to cover for that. You have to pay for it. And so without a guarantee of a minimum wage, the truck drivers just get fucked. And so these truck drivers have actually been fighting for years to try and get the law changed to reclassify them correctly. But at the same time, one of the specific reforms that they fought for and won a couple of years ago was a law uh, mandating what are called safe rates, which is basically a minimum, more or less a minimum wage for truckers in certain parts of its sector, specifically the import export container transport and bulk cement transport sectors, where after, you know, years of protests from these organized truckers, they won a new law that would require that drug truck drivers in those sectors be paid a minimum rate for all relevant drivers, even if they're not classed as employees, even if they're classed as independent contractors. And that went into effect in January, 2020. But of course, like so many reforms under capitalism, they put an expiration date on it, hoping that they could be like, we'll put this in, we'll calm these protests down and then it'll expire and we can go back to not paying a minimum rate. And that's what it's, it's set to do. It, the, the law is set to sunset so that, 
all the workers would go back to not having this protection. And the thing that I love about this current strike is that not only are the truck drivers demanding that the law not sunset, that it stay in place permanently, they're not just stopping there. They're saying, we need these minimum rates, and so does every other trucker, whether they're in our union, whether they're import-export drivers or not. Every truck driver in South Korea deserves a minimum wage that they can actually live on, and that's what they're demanding with this strike. Right. It's really similar to what in construction is called a prevailing wage, though prevailing wage is generally put into contracts and isn't necessarily part of the law. Um, But but this is basically, you know, forcing the law to create a prevailing wage for the industry on 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 whole. Um, And I, I, I love some of the other effects of this. I mean, the immediate impacts have been like, uh, Certain car companies have not been able to transport cars. Uh, one specifically, what was it? Uh, uh, so Hyundai, yeah, yeah, I definitely want to talk about that. But uh, Hyundai's car production dropped by a half at several of its facilities, and Kia has been having to drive cars init- like individually. Like they literally are paying their workers to individually drive cars to where they need to go. So like you know, you on the interstate, you might see those big trucks that carry like ten or twelve cars. Um, and like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they can't do that. And so they're having to send individual employees in individual cars, like to actually transport their cars. And I, I really hope that at some point we see enough solidarity that these workers are like, you know, technically I'm scabbing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's true for sure. And like, as you alluded to at the beginning, like the really huge effects that this has had is not like the, the, the car industry has been one of the biggest hit. But also because so many of these drivers are import-export drivers for their ports, like the ports of Busan, which, as you said, is the seventh busiest port in the world, the port of, uh, and I'm probably going to say this wrong, I apologize, uh, Pyeongtaek, I think, and the Oiwang uh, Container Depot, which are all huge ports in South Korea, have all basically been ground to a halt by, by this strike. And a big effect that this is likely to have coming up very shortly because it's only, the strike's only been going on for a week. So the, you know, there was a certain amount of inventory that was in warehouses and stuff that didn't have to be moved to the port. But if it continues really on at all, South Korea is the world's biggest exporter of computer chips. And the strike has already stopped the shipment of raw materials to several of the major factories that produce computer chips. And as folks know, we've been experiencing a shortage of computer chips for two years. And so now that the strike has been going on for a week, most of those supplies that were in like warehouses that were had already been paid for have pretty much dried up. So every day that this goes on, you have the world's largest exporter of computer chips will now no longer be able to export them. So like the cascading effects from this strike are set to be enormous. I mean, there's six of the biggest cement companies in Korea, which of course, as we talked about with the cement truck drivers in Seattle who had their general strike um, to get better rates and, and contracts. When these cement truck drivers have been on strike, they basically can't build anything <laughs> because there's no way to get the cement from the, the cement association uh, companies to any of the building sites. And they even like, they even went so far on Thursday as to blockade a sulfate plant, which is like one of the major raw materials necessary for those computer chip factories. But that 
was apparently seen as a step too far by the Korean government. And so they sent in the cops to, to bust up that strike, but still like the, the, the impact has been enormous. I mean, so far the there's, it's caused an estimated at least $1.2 billion in costs for do the companies not being able to move their stuff. So yeah. this strike is huge. Well, that's the power of logistics workers. I mean, there was another, I, I just follow these, you know, for, for the schadenfreude, but uh, there was another big Bitcoin crash over the last oh, day yeah. or so. And uh, I can't help but think that maybe these truck drivers might have had something to do with that, with preventing uh, computer chips from making their way onto markets and preventing people from being able to speculate on buying them. But in any case, you have uh, the chairman of the KPT KPTU Truck Soul, uh, whose name is Bong Juli, who said, quote, KPTU Truck Soul leadership, including myself, will not yield to any threats in the fight to protect truckers' lives and the road safety. Uh, we will fight until all truckers of 420,000 in Korea are covered by the safe rates. From the beginning to the end of the general strike, I will move forward without hesitation, trusting all of my members, my comrades. Hell yeah. <laughs> Badass. Yeah, like this this strike kicks ass <laughs> like i don't really have like uh, an incredibly nuanced analysis of it other than that like this is the power of logistics workers in material reality and like again this is only a fraction of the trucking force in korea and the amount that they've been able to do to drag like the economy to a halt in just a week is enormous and and is is really an indicator for logistics workers anywhere. But I mean, obviously, you know, for most of our audience and us being in the U S it's like, this is why it's so important to organize logistics workers and why the state has fought so hard to prevent that with things like mm -hmm. deregulating the trucking industry, putting in the, you know, the, the railway labor safety act that makes it impossible to fucking strike. So like I, we should be trying to build to the point where we can have a strike like this in the U S like uh, a, an agreement between like the ILWU and the teamsters and to work together to, you know, have the ability to do a strike like this would be an enormous advance for U S labor. That'd be very, very cool. And like, I mean, you, yeah. you want to pass the pro act, Stop devoting any money to funding politicians and devote money to organizing the ability to do a strike like this. That's how you get a reform like the PRO Act passed in a hyper-capitalist country like the United States. Yeah. Well, and in the intersection between the United States and Korea, uh, mm -hmm. we actually are going to move to our next story, which is out of L.A., where uh, Korean barbecue workers uh, won their union contract after a five-year organizing struggle. Um, these workers have consistently been uh, subject to wage theft, where a lot of them are, um, are paid under the minimum wage. Um, so, I mean, a couple of week, weeks ago, workers at uh, Genwa Korean barbecue chain in L.A., they signed their first union contract. Um, their independent union, the California Retail and Restaurant Workers Union, CRRWU, uh, was formed to fight back against constant wage theft, which I mentioned. And uh, the Korean, the Koreatown Immigrant Workers Alliance, KIWA, estimates that the workers have lost $1.4 billion every year in wage theft alone. 
Yeah. Uh, it's fucking you know, wild. Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot on this show about how, like, wage theft is the number one largest form of theft in the country, possibly in the world. Uh, but it's, it's a also bigger like, industry than most industries. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, it, it tends to be really intensified when the workers, by and large, are not white. There's a heavily racialized mm-hmm. element to wage theft as well. So the workers at this uh, Genoa... Uh, Korean barbecue chain are overwhelmingly either Korean, Mexican, or Central American, and they have pointed out that Latino and immigrant workers face wage theft at a rate over three times that of white workers. So in 2019, two years after reaching out to Kiwa, workers did win $2.1 million in restitution after California ruled that the restaurant had been stealing wages by paying less than the minimum wage, to which I have to say... If they shouldn't have to do that, if they had just been paid the correct wage, they probably would have gotten more than the two point one million that they became legally entitled to after the fact. Yeah, I, it, the 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 early stages of this story really do get into all of the problems with U.S. labor law. Mm-hmm. Like again, like like as we talked about, like they reached first reached out to the the to Kiwa this worker center. In 2017, it took two years for California to get them this restitution. And that actually is one of the things that motivated these workers to, to shift their organizing from just trying to address this wage theft to saying, if, it, if it's going to take us two years every time to, to get through a major wage theft claim, mm-hmm. we got to have something different. And so that is one of the things that pushed them to organize a union. And so... After that ruling in 2019, workers really started the ball rolling on getting their union going. And initially, they faced a huge amount of pushback from the, the management at Genoa, where they file, they actually filed lawsuits against the workers for holding informational pickets and for delivering a proposal for a meeting to resolve the issues to Genoa's owner, which I don't really understand what the basis for suing them over that would have been. Uh, I mean, I'm sure it was just an intimidation factor, but just like it was wild. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting reading about this story, and a lot of this came out of a really good piece in Jacobin from Alex Press, who does really good work over there, um, where it was one of the ways that a lot of companies will try and divide workforces. And I'm sure, you know, our, our listeners who've worked in, in, in restaurant and, and just really any sort of food service will, will understand this is they, they do the division of front of house and back of house. And one of the things though, in this case that I thought was interesting, you know, learning about this was that there's an additional like racial divide in the way that that's done in a lot of these restaurants where the front of house workers tended to be Korean and the, the back of house workers tended to be Latino. And so you would have like, some business owners trying to to pit those groups against each other so that they wouldn't organize. But after some initial hurdles in this, uh, you know, organizing campaign here at Genwa, the workers that were actually able to turn that level of diversity into a real strength, which I think is, is awesome. And, and, and is really, I think one of those things that we can really learn from about this drive, like, uh, Jose Roberto Hernandez, who's the president of the CRW, CRRWU, this new independent union at the Genoa, uh, restaurants said, quote, it's the joining together of the Latino workforce and the Korean workforce that sustains these industries. And so it makes perfect sense then that the way to build that union is to capitalize on the strengths of those two groups of people. And so, one of the things, though, that stalled their efforts was, you know, they we, we've been mentioning the timing. They really started the union drive 
in the second half of 2019 and they work in a restaurant and we all know what happened at the beginning of 2020, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the pandemic hit, which caused a ton of restaurants to close and lay off their staff. So like a ton of the workers at Genwa just ended up getting laid off at the beginning of the pandemic. But they were able to maintain their organizing structure. They were able to maintain their solidarity through the early days of the pandemic, stick together. And so when the Genwa chain decided to reopen, they were basically able to come out and be like, oh, hey, you really want to reopen now, right? Uh, You remember how you were trying to fight our union? Well, and the fact that we were able to have all these informational pickets and demonstrations, it would sure be a shame if when you went to go have your big grand reopening, if there was a big picket because you guys were still trying to bust our union. And so they were able to convince their management to allow a, to be neutral and allow a card check style election. And so in 2021, the vast majority of the 325 workers at the Genoa restaurants voted for the union and had since been recognized with this new contract. This should be how it is every single time. I mean, forced card check. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. Like there would be so many more unions if that were the case. Well, and luckily with this, uh, you know, struggle that the workers have waged, uh, their new contract has been ratified with uh, over 98% of workers. Um, that includes raises to $21 per hour, more money for health care, yeah. new tip distribution system, uh, retirement benefits, uh, conflict resolution procedure, and an agreement by management to rehire workers laid off at the start of the pandemic. That is a huge list of demands yeah. that have been won. Like it's going from being paid under the minimum wage to having a $21 an hour like rate is super impressive and just so awesome. And this is what a union gets you folks. Yeah. And I know, I, you know, I usually don't tend to include, um, management or owner quotes in these, unless we're going to be making fun of them. But I, it, it honestly, at least from the quotes that we're getting, it does seem like the the owners of this chain have at least somewhat come around uh, and have been at least convinced that working with the union is a better option than not working with it. Because it, after the new contract was signed, which again is in, is extremely in, in favor of the workers, it's not as if it's some shitty contract that it was forced on them. Like this was a huge win for the workers. But even in response to that, the, the owners said, our objective is to grow together with our employees and ensure that both Genwa jobs and service are world-class. I hope it becomes a model for others in the industry. Yeah, I mean... That's really encouraging. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and within the capitalist framework, I mean, that's uh, honestly a a much more hopeful goal than we'll see from almost any other business. Like, you know, so, I mean, though it is not exactly what what we are struggling for as, you know, people wanting to liberate the working class, uh, at the very least, uh, this is more promising. And honestly, that makes the uh, Genwa more progressive than any other progressive fucking company (laughs) that we've ever reported on. Yeah, unironically, absolutely. Like, yeah. th- just allowing the card check election, even if it was sort of, you know, forced on them by the workers organizing, uh, that alone makes them more more progressive than Trader Joe's, Apple, Starbucks, any of these companies. A fucking Amy's Kitchen for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, I mean, the other thing, though, that I think is really important to emphasize with this as a win, sort of in the same way that we have on, like, Burgerville, when we've talked about them, like, 
organizing restaurants is incredibly difficult because of so many of the structural things like the high turnover rate, the fact that restaurants tend to be relatively low margin, although not as low of a margin as the owners would, you know, try and make you think. Um, I, and, I make two shoestrings and a rubber band every right, day. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but like the fact that they were able to fight through this and the fact that they were able to sustain an organizing drive at a restaurant mm -hmm. for five years through the pandemic. Like that's incredible work by these organizers and is, is like really, I mean, it's, it's hard to say that it's a model because like, I'm not exactly sure that every restaurant, you know, environment could sustain a drive like that, but it's, it's a really inspirational story. And like, the Hernandez, the, the president of, of their union, I, I think has some really great words to, to, for people who are thinking about potentially organizing their own workforce saying, do not give up. Labor rights are for everybody, independent from your legal status in the United States. Do not be afraid to fight. Do not let up. Do not accept any violations or any harassment and do not be pitted against other workers. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's super important. And it's really good to hear because we do see that that fear tactic that is imposed by our, our awful immigration system that is designed to split up workers, to uh, disempower people who are on visas and to, to try to encourage people who are in that position to still hold solidarity with everyone else, because these are the kind of wins that you can get is so important and very cool to see from this labor leader. Hell yeah. So we got. One quick one uh, as, as we move forward. We've got yet another coffee union, folks. Oh, but <laughs> like, this place, uh, they don't wear green aprons, folks. <laughs> I think the, they wear brown aprons at this. I don't know. This is my parents' favorite coffee. So oh, it's really? nice to see that it will be uh, union, union coffee now. <laughs> yeah. This is, we're talking about in uh, intelligence. In, is it intelligentsia. intelligentsia. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. What a fucking name. Yeah. Uh, this, that's like what? Collecti <laughs> it's almost like collectivo and, and like weird fucking, I don't know. Anyway, well, I thought the, the coolest thing about this union drive is that these workers who are organizing with IBEW Local 1220 have filed for five Chicago locations basically at the same time. Yeah. Which was really fucking cool. Like, just imagine, like, one day your boss gets a letter that doesn't say, oh, you've got one union coming, but you've got five of them. I mean, I did, yeah. a, whole, I, I did a whole fucking uh, Twitter thread about how the Starbucks union drive is in part winning because they're providing an extremely high level of variety that Starbucks being a very, like, vertical and, uh, you know, homogenous company can't really, uh, can't really meet. They can't fight on all of those different terrains. And to see these workers go ahead and just be like, why don't we just file all the union, uh, union elections at the same time is, like, you really you put the employer on the back foot it seems like a it seems like a silly little tactic but like stuff like this adds up <laughs> yeah and so intelligentsia has stores in la boston new york and austin but the workers are focusing on the chicago locations for now which as you said includes like five cafes and their chicago roasting works which is where they prepare the company's coffee beans and uh, you know, as we talk about with so many of these union drives, the pandemic is the thing that really kicked off the union efforts for these folks. And so, like, one of the organizers, a barista at one of the Chicago stores, Jordan Partial, said, we realized there was nobody looking out for us if our workplaces were to close. There was nobody protecting us, nobody made making sure we had good severance or anything like that. 
And so, like, what they're asking for is more or less the same thing that, you know, we hear from so many workers in this same situation. They're asking for better pay, better benefits, more holidays, hiring more workers to reduce overwork and and to regularize schedules. And one of the specific things is that for workers who who work at the roasting works where they actually prepare the beans, (laughs) one of their demands is just to simply have air conditioning at the plant Mm -hmm. because it it being a roastery and not being air conditioned, they say they're in constant high temperatures and they don't have enough breaks to get water. So you have people constantly being dehydrated and you know, well, you always have that risk of heat stroke in those sorts of environments. It's wild that they make beverages and, or, or even the things to make beverages and don't have enough time for water breaks. Like the, the, I just remember working at Starbucks and they're like, our water has been filtered 200 times reverse and forward and through eight (laughs) different machines. And, and like, yeah, there's not enough time to step off the, the floor to even get a drink of water. Yeah. And, and to the point that you were mentioning, though, John, you were mentioning Colectivo. Well, I mean, the thing with this that's interesting is that this is the same local, actually, that successfully uh, or unionized the Colectivo workers. IBEW Local 1220 is that same one. And so, like, yeah. John Rizzo, the that local's president, John was Rizzo. saying that— <laughs> this this wait isn't isn't lo- IBEW Local 1220 also the local that's unionizing the PBS affiliate in Chicago? I think so. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Way to go, local twelve twenty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, local twelve twenty making moves. We love to see it. Also, and yeah, like John Rizzo, I feel like is one of the most midwestern names I've ever heard. <laughs> um, but he, there, he's like local twelve twenty's business manager who said, "Intelligentsia workers look to Collectivo and believe that they can make also make a difference at their workplace." Starbucks looked to Collectivo and organized in Buffalo, New York. All it takes is for somebody to take that first step, and you create a movement. Hell yeah. yeah. And so uh, a single spark can uh, can start a prairie fire. That's right. Can start a fire right under the boss's desk, which has apparently begun to happen at least a little bit. Uh, The CEO doesn't seem to have put a full anti-union operation into place, but has started sending uh, letters to employees full of boilerplate anti-union talking points, uh, including third partying the union. We do not know uh, right now if the intelligentsia workers are going to face all of the same sort of like captive audience, meaning schedule changes, uh, status quo violations, retaliatory firings and all kinds of other shit that you see at Starbucks and Amazon uh, and many other workplaces where workers are fighting for their unions but with uh, so many workers in like the the coffee industry broadly unionizing Colectivo Starbucks now Intelligentsia uh, there is like a whole there's a whole field like there's a whole arena for this to play out in and uh, rules and strategies and stuff are starting to to really develop and you, you can see that shit in real time on Twitter if you just follow all the locals <laughs> yeah absolutely I mean Chicago is very quickly becoming like a union coffee town it's mm-hmm. gonna be hard I, I think at this point to find non-union coffee <laughs> well Chicago and like Buffalo right so it's like yeah. you know they should meet in the middle and do all of Michigan we have this terrible <laughs> chain here called Bigby that could use some unionization <laughs> 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 hell yeah, hell yeah. I mean, and I guess speaking of things that are everywhere, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're gonna we're gonna move to be talking about uh, Dollar General, the mm-hmm. the place that you have seen pop up in your uh, your town if it hasn't already been there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because for sure. And and they're seeing tons and tons of people just quitting. I mean, like the work conditions at this place are awful. Uh, one of the the people who was were doing this partially out of a, a Jacobin article, pers- a worker uh, Dave Williams, 
said that uh, as a worker at a New Orleans location, um, that he, in regards to his struggle of living on nine twenty five an hour, say he said, um, "I never know when I'm going to have my next meal. I never know when I'll be able to pay my rent." I'm constantly figuring out if I need to ask for extensions on bills, and then I'm not sure if I can even hit the extensions deadlines. It's con- it's a constant struggle thinking uh, thinking about this every single day. And I have, I mean, like, I'm sure that a lot of people have worked wages for wages this low and are very familiar with this process of, like, really just not knowing how you're ever going to juggle all of these things. It's absolutely awful it's i mean i don't know maybe not everybody experiences it but i've experienced it and it is fucking terrible well and and something he didn't mention is like the the load of stress that these employees carry because they're so like you know horribly overworked uh we talked about this when we talked about family dollar back on episode 89 and we're talking about it at dollar general now like it's been ever since i learned about how exploitative they are i don't really go to them anymore but i remember the last time i was in a dollar store there was a button on the counter that was like ring this i were busy stocking shelves and i realized that they needed that because there was only one employee in the mm-hmm. store at all also yeah. remember there are no the most of the time those cameras are unplugged mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i mean honestly like dollar stores are basically criminal enterprises yes. like the, these are these are institutions that exist they're basically like if you want to look at one industry that is actively profiting on the hollowing out of this country and like basically trying to just scrape as much profit as they can out of the working class by squeezing their workers like into a dust like i it's hard to think of a a, an industry more exploitative i mean i guess agriculture pharmaceuticals maybe (laughs) but like like family dollar dollar general all of these places their entire business model is based solely on paying workers sub poverty wages Mm -hmm. they may be legal wages because our country isn't raised the minimum wage and for fucking ever but like you shouldn't be allowed to pay somebody 925 an hour i don't care where they live i don't care that the like cost of living isn't as high as in new york or san francisco even before this current level of inflation as as like that guy dave williams was describing you cannot live on that so like the fact i don't care that it's technically legal to pay workers that it is morally illegal right (laughs) And, and like these companies base their whole model off of it and, and yeah. You, yeah, you have figures from the uh, Economic Policy Institute that say over 90% of Dollar General workers make less than $15 an hour, and nearly a quarter of them make less than $10 an hour, while their CEO made $1.7 million last year. And uh, the company has racked up $3.5 million in six years of OSHA fines, which is like... We've mentioned so many times on this show how willing OSHA is to just give you a tiny little slap on the wrist fine. <laughs> so to rack up $3.5 million in anything less than a decade is honestly an insane tally of OSHA violations. Yeah, I mean, how many places have we talked about where the, you have a business that is literally responsible for the death of their employees on the job site and they get fined like twelve grand? <laughs> yeah. So 
like that is routine. That's the sort of thing OSHA puts out for fines. So the fact that they've managed to get millions of dollars in OSHA fines just tells you how abysmal and horrible like they treat their employees like one of the stories like uh, more perfect union put out a really good video about this as they usually do where they interviewed a bunch of workers at a dollar general in oklahoma who had all quit on mass because they had been complaining for months about the fact that their ac didn't work you had people who were constantly coming into the store and stuff like they had candy melting on the shelves because it was so hot in there and they eventually made a complaint and then the the company sent out they're like okay fine we'll replace it and then they brought them a broken ac unit <laughs> yeah and then i i i think that they were still did that where they were still waiting to get it fixed they, they brought out three units and actually yeah. they were all broken yeah <laughs> yeah so it's it's insane. And I mean, there was a, a worker, Mary Gundel, who was a manager at a dollar store, a dollar general in Tampa, who told uh, Jacobin that, quote, as a manager, not a day went by where we were properly staffed, forcing me to go beyond my duties to unpack boxes, clear store aisles or work countless hours in overtime. It's appalling that it had to take a viral video of my store's conditions for the corporate executives to begin paying attention. But Unfortunately, most of what we've seen from the, the management about paying attention has just been trying to do some PR about it. They haven't really been doing anything to improve stuff about it. I mean, you've had workers like uh, at the end of May, you had 150 workers from stores across the country who traveled to the annual the company's annual shareholder meeting in Tennessee to protest the conditions. And despite all this, like Dollar General, in order to maintain their obscene level of exploitation, have also been one of the most aggressive companies out there in stamping out union drives. Like they have closed multiple stores just at the whiff that there might be people organizing there. Like specifically, they hired Labor Relations Institute to overwhelm workers at a store in Connecticut last year. But like that's their thing. It's like their old business model is like we cannot survive by paying workers enough money to live on. So if workers actually tried to organize for their rights, we have to just close the store. Like that's basically their orientation. And that's really why I think that it's correct to label these places a criminal enterprise. (laughs) But I mean, yeah, I mean, this whole thing is just, this story is about Dollar General, but you could copy paste so much of this stuff from when we talked about Family Dollar, I'm sure at Dollar Tree and any of the various other Mm -hmm. dollar stores, it's the same business model, so... Yeah, yeah. even in the... I'm sure at UK's Pound Town, uh, (laughs) (laughs) it's also that way. (laughs) Yeah, we have a grocery store that's also kind of a dollar store here called Save-A-Lot, and uh, I remember going in there a few weeks ago and noticing that there were actually three employees in the store, and I was like, wow, (laughs) fancy for for what's basically a dollar store with vegetables. Yeah, Um, like... I mean, the ones around here, I don't think I've ever seen more than two people working mm-hmm. at the same time, which I've always just been like, this is actually kind of a big store. This doesn't seem like enough staff. And that's just unsafe, too. Like, if you're in yeah. a relatively large environment where there's things like tall shelves or large equipment that could fall on you or hurt you, like, you need to have multiple people there to respond to, like, emergency situations. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so those places also, like, you know, if you, if you are stealing from them, they actually encourage their employees to confront like the thieves at those places because <laughs> like i i don't mostly because they don't have any value for the human lives that they're exploiting but uh like it's fucking wild that you can be paid so little be so overworked and still they want you to put your life on the line for them 
Yeah. So, I mean, as frustrating as their anti-union efforts have been, it's really been good to see this sort of like spur, this movement that was, you know, went viral under the put in a ticket hashtag, like basically a reference to their non-functional complaint system whereby like workers can put in a thing that needs to be fixed and the company never fixes it. Um, and so like right now, mostly what we're seeing is like people quitting on mass, people doing walkouts, people doing protests, but that's, you know, that's the first step that we, when we see union drives pop off. And so like the, they're not going to be able to suppress you know, worker agitation forever. So, uh, you know, all, all solidarity with these workers who've been pushing back and, and, and fuck Dollar General. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, Always. maybe if Dollar Every General dollar gets store. a, gets a union stuff in there will actually be a fucking dollar again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, and then, uh, as we have done every week for, I think a couple months now, Yep. Yeah. Uh, we have our Starbucks uh, kind of roundup. So we were discussing last week that in Ithaca, there was the store, the announced store closing of the uh, grease trap you uh, store, and how the workers have basically, you know, been been out there protesting. Well, they've called for an entire boycott of Starbucks at all locations in Ithaca to try to get the get Starbucks to not close the store and actually address what is going on there. Yeah. And they held protests this weekend and really throughout last week at that college Ave location that Starbucks, I think actually did close on Friday, but like they're maintaining these protests. They are holding a, a, a citywide boycott and that really just, you know, that's the sort of thing that these workers are only able to do and coordinate at the citywide level because they put together this rank and file union drive mm -hmm. and unionized every store in the country. And that gives them the ability to do this, which has been really encouraging to see. And so we'll have to see what the ultimate fallout is. Cause this is a very much an ongoing thing, but that strike was really good to see. And we've seen a whole bunch of other pushback, like, Normally I haven't put the like union store announcements in here because there's too many of them and we already have so much stuff to talk about right. with Starbucks every week. But one that I wanted to mention is that on last Tuesday on June 7th, workers at the first and Pike store in Seattle announced their intent to unionize. And the reason that they had announced their intent to unionize is that Starbucks is converting their store into a heritage district, which I don't really know what that means, if that's a Seattle thing, but what it has meant in practice for the workers is that they all got fired and had to reapply for their own jobs at the now relabeled Heritage District Starbucks. The, the business has not changed locations. The business that they're doing, the coffee that they're making, none of that has changed. They have just unilaterally fired everyone and said, okay, now you can reapply. The fire and rehire yeah. tactic, the, despite how we have covered it many times being, you know, fairly effective at, at uh, you know, organization busting, uh, hopefully has done the opposite in this case with these uh, workers going out in protest. 
Well, and the workers had some words for Starbucks about this. They said uh, in their statement, quote, there is more attention and care for the reputation of the store rather than the employees who are the foundation of its success. It is imperative that we put the needs of our partners first and always. We do not consider this a celebration. We consider this a corporate mandated two weeks notice. We have already found our home here and we should not be required to beg Starbucks to keep the jobs we already have. I mean, well said. Anytime a company just fires and rehires a store on mass it's like it that should be illegal <laughs> if yeah. we pass the pro act are they gonna not be allowed to do that anymore or like what's the deal <laughs> yeah i don't know but i mean more importantly is the fact that workers aren't waiting for that like right. they're just like oh you're gonna do this well fine we're forming a union <laughs> fuck you yes so uh, yeah, I mean that—that's the absolute correct response, and it's really encouraging to see the workers, you know, taking this, taking that power back into their own hands by doing this, which rocks. Right. Well, um, and speaking of the workers having a correct response, uh, we're, we talked last week, I believe, about the workers in Phoenix, Arizona, who filed a 10J injunction against Starbucks for three workers who had been illegally fired, and unfortunately, a federal judge has dismissed that 10 J injunction. Uh, so not really yeah. sure how you proceed once your 10 J has been dismissed, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. From what I can tell it's, I don't believe it, it necessarily forecloses on the workers being rehired, mm -hmm. but what it does is it terminates the, it's, he's basically denying that they need to be rehired in an immediate time frame, and that they're firing like art, like permanently prejudices, the like election procedure. So like it, like dismissing the lawsuit is bullshit. Like it's, it's incredibly obvious retaliation, mm -hmm. but I, I think mostly what it's illustrating is that there are so many ways for companies to break the law and get away with it. That unless you find a really sympathetic judge, it's very easy for a judge, the vast majority of whom, uh, you know, just structurally are going to be pro business for them to just be like, well, look, if they're a business, they can fire workers. Like, you can't prove that they were fired for retaliation. So we'll go through the regular non-10J process in, like, two years or whatever. You don't right. get this mm -hmm. quick reinstatement. But Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. speaking of ways that uh, companies can just flagrantly violate the law and get away with it, Howard Schultz recently did an interview with Andrew Sorkin where he said that the company would, quote, never accept the union, and uh, Starbucks Workers United didn't lose any time filing a ULP charge over that because it's like, you're just announcing your intent to never bargain in good faith, which is oh. yeah, a violation yeah. of your legal obligation. I, I actually want to include, I think I'm going to include that, at least the, the main part of that clip in here, because mm -hmm. it's straight up like uh, there is a video of Howard Schultz being like, we will never work with the union. And we have to demonstrate to our people they can trust us and we have to show up. Could you ever see doing that and embracing the union as part of it? No. Why not? The primary reason is we are in business to exceed the expectations of our customers. A hundred million people come into Starbucks. The customer experience will be significantly challenged and less than if a third party is integrated into our business. And because they're not acting in good faith? Because we have, we have a different view. And, and Aaron, let's, I don't want to spend the entire time in the union. Come on. No, but but I just I just want to understand it because there's headlines every day yeah. about you know, this at Starbucks, but this is everywhere else as well, Amazon and, and others. But I think there's a there's a focus on is there is there a way for companies and unions potentially to work together? 
And, and you know, given how progressive your company has been, there's lots of people who look at, at, at Starbucks. I was looking at the headline. Yeah. Starbucks is a latte liberal until it's not. Well. This is, it's, it's a mean, mean headline. National Review, by the way. <laughs> uh, not The New York Times. But, but I, I say it. Yeah. Be, I, oh, I only no. say it because I think that there's a question. Is there a way for both to live in harmony? My belief is that we have built a company that is centered around exceeding the expectations of our people and our customers. And that is the vision we have for the future of the company. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I watched it. I was like, this you, is I illegal. have two parts of my, like, it was like the two sides of my brain where the first part of me is like, dude, you can't say that. <laughs> and then the other side is like, I don't know, maybe this is just a, a demonstration really of how like, the ruling class views labor law as, as a mild inconvenience more than a law, yeah. which is probably more of the, the actuality of it. Well, this might be an opportune time to remind people that Hillary Clinton wanted to make Howard Schultz her secretary yes. of labor. <laughs> yeah. Ugh, my God. Wow. I, yeah, this is one of the... So this is not actually germane, but I have to go off on this. So I was reading this book, and this will not be that long, so I apologize for the interjection. But I was reading this labor history, uh, A History of American Ten Strikes, by the extremely liberal uh, professor at the University of Rhode Island, Eric Loomis. And he had this whole thing about how white workers didn't vote for Hillary Clinton because they're, like, racist and sexist. And I'm just like, look, yeah, there are racist white workers, and there are plenty of sexist white workers, for sure. We have a lot of work to do on improving the consciousness of the working class. The reason people didn't vote for Hillary Clinton is she was a fucking terrible candidate who wanted to make people like Howard Schultz her labor secretary. That's why she lost. You don't need some fancy thing about how workers voted against their best interests. Most workers didn't vote because they saw fucking Hillary and Trump and were like, well, fuck that. Both those options are terrible. It's very simple to explain this. And the, it, like the whole thing just got me very frustrated. And that is, a, like I think, a perfect reminder of like this idea that there was like some great, wonderful, progressive alternative for from the Hillary campaign. This is complete dog shit. Cause can you imagine labor secretary, Howard Schultz, you'd never have a successful, like recognized union drive for the whole four years. No, no. And instead of the pro act, they would pass the nay act, which would, which <laughs> yeah. would give us all the rights that like, you know, fucking agricultural workers have now. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, but, so oh, and one last bit before we get to the union wins is just this Saturday, workers at the recently unionized Anderson, South Carolina store went on strike for what has been, the, I think, the most common at this point. Reason why a lot of these places have gone on strike is that, yet again, workers uh, won their union and Starbucks retaliated by slashing hours. And this is one of those things that, like, is probably not going to get a ton of coverage because there's so many of these stores. But the fact that these workers have like felt that they can go out on strike because they have their union in a state like South Carolina is really such a demonstration of how important all of this organizing is because like how many strikes do you hear about in South Carolina? Not very many because like the, the, the union density is so low, but this sort of rank and file organizing has empowered the workers to the point where they can go out and demand that their hours not be cut with, without, you know, total fear that they would have previously had. And so I think that's one of the things that we really need to focus on is like an importance of, of why we all need to support this campaign. Hell yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. I mean, like just the fact that uh, the unions have been flexing so much that like even they'll go on strike before they win their NLRA election. Yeah. 
Like that that is the kind of action that we like seeing. And honestly, uh, I hope that they get even more coordinated. I mean, I I know that they were calling for the boycott of Starbucks in Ithaca. I mean, I, I mean, I know it's really hard to coordinate. You know, shutting down all those stores, but it would be pretty cool if they did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, and like uh, last week, we had a huge flood of union elections to kick off right at the beginning of the week, and they were almost all wins, like just continuing the trend that we've seen for since this whole wave has started, really. Uh, so on June 3rd, workers at the Nanuit Starbucks in upstate New York won their union election 14 to 5 and became the first unionized store in the Hudson Valley. On Monday, June 6th, workers at the Howell Mill Road store in Atlanta became the first in, in the city of Atlanta to unionize with a 10 to 1 vote. The Claire's and 41st store in Capitola, California, won their vote 8-3. to three. Workers in St. Anthony, Minnesota, also won their election with a vote of 12-5. to five. And finally, workers in Astoria, Queens, in New York City, voted how else? Unanimously, 11-0 to zero to unionize with Starbucks Workers United. Way to go, uh, Astoria, Queens. Hell yeah. We love to see it. And then on Tuesday, Tuesday was a huge day. Super Tuesday, <laughs> Star- we call it. <laughs> it. I mean, it was, really, for, for Starbucks, because, like, whew, I got, like, half a page of union <laughs> wins here. But the first one, and really the biggest story of last Tuesday, this was on June 7th, was the election at the Poplar and Highland store in Memphis, Tennessee, where back in, I believe, February, Starbucks fired the stores, basically their entire union organizing committee, who are, if folks may remember, the Memphis Seven, which was a mostly like mostly made up of, of black women. Like they're basically, it was a clearly targeted firings that they figured, well, this, this committee is mostly women. It's mostly black workers. We can get away with firing them and we'll be able to suppress the union election that way. And there's, you know, the, the union has filed ULPs, of course, filed lawsuits, tried to get the workers reinstated. And unfortunately the legal system has moved too slow to do that. But despite all that, despite the, insane number of firings the fact they were obviously retaliatory and what you would expect to be a chilling effect from that sort of like blatant violation didn't matter (laughs) because when they had their election the workers voted 11 to 3 overwhelmingly to unionize like so like if you can't stop a union campaign when you fired the entire organizing committee you should probably just stop breaking the law because <laughs> the law breaking isn't actually succeeding. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's not actually fucking doing anything. I mean, what other company has faced uh, a wave of unionization with an over 90% success rate? I mean, like, has that ever <laughs> happened in the United States before? <sighs> Ever? I, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, yeah, it, the numbers, we, we just come up with newer, more and more superlatives, really, every week because the success is ridiculous. And so, like, Nikki Taylor, who's one of the Memphis Seven who was illegally fired for organizing, said after the news of the union's election win broke, the reason that I'm in tears is because the Memphis Seven have worked so hard for this. Starbucks's union busting backfired. None of these elections have been fair, and we still won. The Memphis Seven has made the country stronger. And she's absolutely right. Like, they have been some of the loudest boosters out there on social media for not only their own co-workers at this store, but for the movement more broadly, encouraging people to organize even in the face of this campaign. And this election completely vindicates them. Like, mm-hmm. this was... It was so exciting to see this win and really like, yeah, it's just like, 
the only, at this point, after this specific election, you can't even make like a business case justification for the illegal union busting campaign anymore because it's absolutely only hurting Starbucks. It's just now burning money point. and it, it's burning public goodwill as well. Yeah. Like the, it is now basically Howard Schultz personal crusade against the workers of Starbucks because it's not like you're not stopping the unionizing. So you're not saving the store money. You're just pouring millions and millions of dollars into the black hole of Littler Mendelssohn and getting nothing out of it except like justified hatred from a lot of people because of the way you're treating workers. Yeah. Well, yeah. and like uh, another place where, where Howard Schultz found a really great hill to die on was in Ann Arbor where four out of the <laughs> yeah. five stores that tried to unionize, uh, won their union elections with a combined vote of 49 to six in favor of unionizing. So that's the state and Liberty store, Jackson and Zeeb, Washtenaw and the main Liberty store all voted for the union with three or fewer votes against at every store. W- the one store, that did not vote for the union, the university and church store voted 16 to 10 against unionizing. But I mean, four out of five is incredible for for one city. And to have these little strongholds where you have a really high rate of unionized stores all in one little geographic area really gives you power. Like we were just talking about in Ithaca five minutes ago. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and So we had the victory in Memphis, four out of five wins in Ann Arbor. And that's just getting started on the the Tuesday slate of elections because you also had a victory where workers voted eight to nothing to unionize at East Olive Way store in Seattle, 12 to three in favor of the union at the Capitol Boulevard store in Tumwater, Washington. And those victories made Washington a perfect 10 for 10 on union elections so far. Hell yeah. There was... On the same day, a store in Lawrence, Kansas, became the first in that city to unionize with a vote of 19 to 3. There was a a vote of a store in yet another victory in Portland at the Jansen Beach location where workers won 10 to 5. And another unanimous victory in New York when workers at the Stuyvesant Plaza location in Albany won 15 to 0. And then we had two more wins where I didn't have vote counts on two stores or actually the specific location of two more stores in Chicago. And so all of that added up to 12 election wins for the movement just on last Tuesday. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. And then the following day, June 8th, uh, it was slightly quieter where we had a vote in Colorado Springs where the workers voted 12 to 4 to unionize, making them the second in the city and the sixth in the state. Then Thursday, workers at Corbin's Corner in West uh, Hartford voted to form their first unionized Starbucks in the state uh, in in Connecticut, uh, 13 to 3 in favor of the union. Yeah. Also voting 13 to 3 on Thursday was the Lake Lansing location in East Lansing. And three more Michigan. There's a lot of Michigan wins this week. Yeah, Michigan. (laughs) (laughs) There were wins in Clinton Township, Lansing, and Flint. And then also on Thursday, we had wins at Oviedo, Florida, with this is another really big one where they won 24 to 6. Like, that's a huge store. Mm -hmm. And in Anaheim, where workers voted 10 to 1 in favor of the union, making them the fifth store in Florida and the seventh store in California to unionize. That rocks. But we need more in Michigan because all of these uh, unionized stores in Michigan are like in East Michigan, and then you get the occasional (laughs) Lansing. There was that one in Grand Grand Rapids. Rapids, Grand Rapids is great, but I want like Kalamazoo. I want South Haven. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Hell, I mean, they're probably coming. I mean, and so to wrap it up on Friday, Utah became the 30th state with a union Starbucks. So that's another thing. If your state's behind Utah, I mean, come on, go, go. <laughs> Go go to your local Starbucks and order your something and say it's Union Yes and talk to the workers. Yeah, just, I, like, just get like a cup of water. Who I, cares? I was just watching that uh, under the banner of heaven, and I don't know that much about the Mormons' takes on labor law, but I have to imagine that if a store in Utah can organize, any store anywhere can organize. <laughs> yeah, and, and so... The, these were workers at a store in Cottonwood Heights, which is a suburb of Salt Lake City, where they voted 11 to 6 to unionize. Also on Friday, Austin, Texas got their second unionized store with on a 10 to 2 election. And then to cap off the week, we got, I mean, good job on New York this week, where mm-hmm. the they got another unanimous win when workers on Long Island won a 23 to nothing victory at the Westbury location, which... And this is getting really hard to track because there have been so many wins and there's different trackers that have different numbers, but I believe we are now at 145 unionized Starbucks locations across that the country. That is wild. I, we literally, I feel like it was just yesterday that we passed the 100 <laughs> mark and I'm so proud. <laughs> I mean, honestly, yeah. it's it, this one has really thrown me for a loop because uh, COVID like made me unable to properly track the passage of time for about a year and a half, and then like right as I had just gotten good at figuring out which day of the week it was again, like. It felt like two weeks went by and all of a sudden a hundred Starbucks stores were unionized. And I'm like, now I'm happy and disoriented. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of being happy and disoriented, welcome (laughs) to the meme review. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's right, folks. And so we figured, you know, what better way to start off the meme review than just go straight out of the Starbucks segment into a Starbucks meme where you've got this three panel here. Folks have probably seen this format before where you've got the top one. Never ask a woman her age, a man, his salary. And then the bottom panel, Littler Mendelssohn, how many Starbucks union elections it has lost. <laughs> 145. Oh, it's about 145. <laughs> yeah, that's right. To I think maybe 10, maybe yeah, it's, I mean, I don't know. This this format is funny, especially mostly because it's so pixelated. It's been copied and yeah. reposted so much, so many times, and it's really just incredibly low quality. Yeah, how many times has <laughs> the fucking nine gag and iFunny watermark been cropped off of this image before oh, it yeah, found new absolutely. life? Or just like the imager logo, yeah. But then instead of a meme that is hyper hyper modern, we have a vintage meme <laughs> for the next one where but it's very relevant. Yeah, yeah, and it's like an old style, you know, political cartoon style drawing. And at the top, it just says, "Did you hear this one?" And then you see the boss, uh, who is you know illustrated as this giant man in a top hat, holding a piece of paper in front of the worker, and it just says, "Wage increases cause inflation." The boss and it signed the, boss. the bosses. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I love this one because I love the idea of like two workers like saying to each other at a bar, like, did you hear the one where they said wage increases cause inflation? And then they just like slam their beer steins on the table and laugh uproariously. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the one detail that you left out is that the boss's left hand is in the pocket of the worker. Ah, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't know like when this one is from, but it's like 
Mm, boy, this is a, a permanent truism, I guess, that every time that, you know, price gouging get, happens, they just label it inflation and blame it on workers. That's the great yeah. thing about labor humor, I think, is that as long as capitalism exists, it will always be funny and relevant. And once capitalism doesn't exist, you won't mind that it's not funny and relevant anymore. Because <laughs> capitalism <laughs> yeah. will be gone. <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah. Uh, as thinking of like funny uh, we have another kind of vintage meme here, which is a, a it's a you're walking it's this person walking Been down steps. And, I uh, haven't seen this one yet. The the, <laughs> the leg that is going to be walking down the steps is is uh, labor, and the first step is strikes walkouts. So you know that's the first step, and then the next one is disorder and riots. Oh, oh god! And then Bolshevism and murders. <laughs> And then the next one is swag. And then the bottom <laughs> one is just question mark. <laughs> I, I, I like that you uh, you get up to Bolshevism and murders, and then they're like, okay, now it's time for the swag before we enter <laughs> well, the cool zone. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the last step probably said like revolution and anarchy yeah, or yeah. something, but I just love that somebody was just like, no, that's the swag zone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I, I love the old uh, the old timey. Mostly like IWW memes. Like I think generally tend to still just, be fire today. Yeah. They're just accurate. I mean, like the conditions have not changed that much. I mean, people want to think that we live in the future, but the '90s were a mistake. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. So this next one is is this is a tweet from Alan McLeod, uh, uh, who, who writes for like mint press he's he's really good um and it's just like it's a picture from one of those like medieval illuminated manuscripts and it's this like monk who's hunched over he's he's writing in in this book like he's got like his quill and everything and it's got all this scroll work around it and so it's just captioned the problem isn't feudalism the problem is crony feudalism <laughs> <laughs> i can you know, I, I I think that that's so funny, but I have recently actually seen people do the it's 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 corporatism or it's crony mm-hmm. capitalism. Yeah, it's yeah. like, are you fucking kidding me? Are you Man, like? If, o- if only there was less nepotism in this patrilineal monarchy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that's the thing. Well, look, we just yeah, it's the problem is we need free competition. I'm like, the problem is you haven't read any history. Yeah, <laughs> like. That's that like you go. It's crony capitalism. Like man, that's just what capitalism is. Yeah, <laughs> and always has been. Competition. They always love to bring up competition, and it's like competition to what? Competition to attain what? Uh, A monopoly. The, <laughs> right. Well, not yeah, that like, or, or declining rates of profit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's uh, it's goofy, but and so this last one, which I think will be very uh, relatable. <laughs> For any any of our listeners who have spent some time going through job interviews in the recent past, where this is from a, a, a I think this is like what Instagram or whatever, or where it's like from Tank Sinatra. Yeah, yeah. And so it's just a, a few quotes where it's forget everything you learned in college. You won't use it working here. And the response: Oh, I didn't go to college. Oh, well, then you can't work. Here. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's just like the guy looking at the camera, like squinting, like what? What? <laughs> That's me. So it was it was pointless to go to college, but yet you wanted me to go there anyway. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, that's like every, I'd say like 80% of the people I know have told me they're like, oh yeah, I don't do anything at work related to what I went to college for. And I'm like, well, then why can't I have your job? <laughs> and it's yeah. like, well, you didn't, yeah, no. you didn't take out debt to prove that you can, you can commit to the grind for four years. And I'm like, I don't want to take out debt to prove that I can commit <laughs> to the grind for four years. I hate the grind. <laughs> I hate debt. <laughs> Ah, well, that will do it for us today, folks. Uh, we really want to thank you for listening. Uh, if you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash workstoppage and give us $5 a month to get access to our overtime episodes and our shop floor discussions to uh, you know message us about the stickers. I think that there's one person who I still have to send stickers to, uh, but I also have not checked the messages in a couple days. So maybe your message is in there. And if it's not and you haven't gotten stickers, you know, p- give us a message. But then, uh, you know, you can also share the episodes, uh, write a review, you know, anywhere. You can uh, spray paint it on the tires, on the, the tires of your car, so that when you're driving around, you know, you can see the review. Yeah, put it in the public chat of your favorite Roblox server. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, as always, you know, follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain. Follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce, listen to Red Game Table, and actually, as always, I almost uh, jumped the gun on that one, labor peace is not in our interest, and solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody. Someplace I ain't never been Yet again, space travel veteran Never blend like the you to come around Never end the initiation most times Never end these old school letter men Never been like the ash if you know the code Gets again to the thing, barely control That they won't give like they gon' live forever Politicians on straw man missions Stumble in the town looking all ambitious It's about little Peter pumpkin head He won't eat the wonder bread He won't pledge allegiances My saints is dead comedians Trying to taste this bread that's meaningless That shit is warping my soul Only I ain't never been to this